Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks this day for your word for us, for the invitation that you have for us to look at and consider your word, and also the invitation that you have for us to live in response. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Periodically, I will go back and revisit old sermons that I've written. I'm amazed, though, at how often I've forgotten what I've shared with you all in a sermon even just a few months ago. Sometimes it's even weeks. The, the good news, though, is that I usually still agree with what I wrote. Sometimes I have a few questions, but I usually still agree, and I'm occasionally even surprised to find something that I said in a sermon to you all helpful now to me when I go back. What happens, though, most of the time, most of the time when I do this, when I go back and read a sermon, is that I discover that there are some threads that repeat themselves in these sermons. Recurring themes that are like different camera angles showing the same thing, but a little different, a, a different perspective. A mentor of mine once said that most pastors have about four sermons that they preach over and over again. I think there's something to this. While I try to inspire some new and different thought in others, in you, and I hopefully stir up some questions in your minds, some engagement of your own with scripture and with God, most of my sermons come back to one of a few themes. And they all, all of these themes rest on the foundation that is found in our text this morning and a foundation of our lives as followers of God. Our text this morning that Paul read for us is our last in a series from the first letter of John. Paul read from the fourth chapter, and in this climactic reading, we have some of the most important words in Scripture. Their importance is found in the way that the writer seeks to answer one of the most common questions of humankind, and I presume a question that has been asked for all or most all of human history. We've talked about this before, the, the question of who or what created this world in which we live and, and how we might encounter this one. Last year, I shared about ancient cave drawings that showed that the earliest documented humans wondered about this very question. Gazing at the stars, looking around them at nature, finding fire, all of these discoveries, these observations drew them to this question of, of what or who was behind it. Human quest to understand that which we cannot see has led us to create images of the divine. We all know this, right? There's artwork that's replete with images of God, and we all have these images of God in our mind, images of this God we cannot see. We create these images through various influences and inputs, like artwork or popular culture, films, books, television, etc. From a young age, people are often raised to think of God as an old man with a flowing beard, and, and more and more now we're hearing of, of beautiful other images that uh, images of God that look different and hopefully a bit more diverse. But, but all of these, these are created images, right? They're, they're images based on this human desire to understand. This human desire to, to understand 
or dream about who or what created them and, and who or what is in control of the world around them. Who is God? What, what does God look like? And what does God have to do with my life? Layering these questions, we realize that we are drawn continuously. And even when, when we may even seek to escape God, we're drawn to the mystery of the divine. Even many former churchgoers or, or people who've never been a part of a church, they seem to be still seeking God or, or at least acknowledging that there's something, someone, some power that is, they might say, out there. People attach different words. The, the universe, they'll say, is directing things or influencing things. There may be an attempt to separate and use other names, but often it's still an attempt to describe a greater power. My hope and prayer is that the church can be a place, that our church especially, but the greater church, the church can be a place where people feel safe enough and comfortable enough to explore their faith while also taking the chance to hear our understanding of God's love for humanity in Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we can introduce people and even introduce or reintroduce one another to God as God was revealed to humanity in Jesus Christ. This reintroduction is continuous, and it's communal. We learn from one another, young and old, and we experience God more deeply when we create an environment where God's revelation is more clearly visible. So how do we do this? How do we see God in our community? How do we see and reflect God in our family? How do we see God in our relationships with others and in our workplace and in our interaction even with strangers? How do we know God? How do we reach out and touch God? How do we draw others to God? The answer is so simple, it, it, it seems ridiculous. It, it seems ridiculous in part because the answer rolls off our tongue so easily, and yet without examination in our lives, it can be hard to live. When Paul and I were talking about this text beforehand, he was tempted to count how many times he said the word, I wonder if it's on the tip of your tongue. It's the answer to this, this question. The answer, of course, is found in this word love. It repeats over and over and over again. And it should be no surprise, right? Jesus spent so much of his life talking about love. In Matthew 22, we hear that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, in John 13, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. This is the central message of Jesus' last words to his disciples. That's where that, that word Mondi comes from in Mondi Thursday, mandate, this instruction, loving God, loving neighbor. The past two weeks, our texts from 1 John have reiterated this. We heard that whoever does not love abides in death. That was in chapter 3, verse 14. And, and in verse 23 of the same chapter, the, the reiteration that we love God when we follow God's commandment to love others. And so far, though, almost all of this has been like instructions to us. Last week, I even called it obedience, the, the premise of loving God as an instruction. And this is consistent 
with Jewish teachings. And it's characteristic of the biblical tradition that those who love God are those who faithfully respond to God. In the Jewish Shema that's found in Deuteronomy 6.5, the followers of God are instructed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus brings love of God together with love of others in the Gospels. Jesus repeats the language of the Shema, and then he adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving neighbor, they're intimately connected, and they are certainly instructions, instructions to guide behavior. And so this concept of instruction, and specifically obedience to God in our acts of love, it's integral to faithful living. But this morning's text goes a bit further. Obedience is not about following God because of some reward or out of fear of something that will happen if we fail, but rather it's an invitation to love as a means to see and know God. This is huge. This is significant as it is this human quest that that lies at the root of all of us, that has been at the heart and center of all of humanity. If we desire to know and see God whom we cannot see, we we are to seek and embrace the challenge of loving the siblings who we have seen. But how do we do this? This question is answered throughout scripture and and the life of Christ. James puts it this way in, in the second chapter of his letter. He writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Those are powerful words in James's letter. And, and when we read James in conjunction with 1 John, it demonstrates the ways that we are able to love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor involves more than words. It, it must involve action. The words of John and James echo what the prophet Micah writes. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice justice, and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Friends, as followers of Christ, we are therefore compelled to be people who seek justice. And, and we are called to stand for those who are oppressed and who have basic human needs. In Isaiah 58, the prophet declares to Israel that a new type of fast must be followed, a new way of loving and worshiping God. This is what the prophet writes. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house, and you see the naked to cover them. Throughout scripture, there are these tools to understand the call to love our neighbor in action, 
actions that show the love in a real and tangible way. All of scripture provides this guide and this, this backdrop for the challenge that John presents throughout this letter. John is calling upon people to look to God's example and model of love for them and to live into that call. God models true love for us and showed that love to us in the form of Christ. John repeatedly invites his audience into this reality. Christ stood with the oppressed, loved the unlovable, fed the poor, and healed the wounded. Jesus modeled for his followers and for us what it meant to live a life that stands with those who are wronged. James is calling his audience to action as well. And in 1 John 4.19, John writes that we love because God first loved us. When we read this together with that letter of James, we confess that, that all that we have in our lives has been provided by a God who loves us and cares for us. And it is in this knowledge that we too are to respond to others with love and compassion. Because Christians are called to look to God to understand how to love, we are also compelled to seek to understand how we can become living manifestations of that love. There's a lot of empowerment given to you hearing the words of 1 John. The challenge is for each of us to understand how we can live into, into this call to love in the way that God loves. That's precisely the issue in this letter in 1 John, as the believers were being challenged to find the ways that they can be in tune with how God desires them to live and act and love. What he says is that is that we can abide, that we are united with God, that we can remain with God. That's what that word abide means, remain, that we can be with God, that we can, that we can be partners with God, that we can abide with Christ, that we can be partners with Christ, that we can be intimately connected to Christ's work of love in the world. And that, that through this pursuit of understanding of God's love for us, and through this, this pursuit of trying to understand and experience the love that Christ lived, we can then seek to be people who bring that love into the world. John writes that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and God's love is perfected in us. Another way to put that is among us. You see, God uses us, you and me, to bring about God's love into the world today. We are invited to be partners with God. And in partnering with God, we gain knowledge of God. Theologian C.J. Barker writes that this constant outpouring of self in service is the true abiding in God, which is, again, the only real knowledge of God. There are so many people who understand this concept, people who understand what it means to love, but they don't necessarily know that by living love in the world, they are abiding with God. 
that's where faith comes in. And, and sometimes those who are already abiding in God, resting with God, living out, partnering with God, those who are living love in their lives, they, they simply need to be introduced to the God that they're already following and what that God means and has done for them. And friends, as people who profess faith in Christ, we must we must deliberately be about the work of understanding and living love. These, these faith and love go together. You see, growing in faith grows us in love because if we're truly following Christ, if we're truly following Christ, we cannot help but love. Robert Yarborough writes that the road to love is paved with faith. You see, knowing God, following God, seeing God, abiding with God, these are our foundation, our foundation and Christian, as Christians and, and the foundation upon which our faith is built and fostered and developed in our lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our community, and then shared, shared with those around us so that, so that when they see us, they associate us with love. And by associating us with love, they are associating us with God. This love that draws people to God and draws people into their own identity as ones created in the image of God designed to bring God's love into the world. And so may it be for us. May we seek to love. And in loving, may we know God, for God is love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.